Hello and welcome to everyone watching this, wherever you may find yourself in life at this moment. Uh, we want to welcome you as we join with millions and millions of believers around the world in celebrating the death, burial and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ultimate triumph over sin, death and the grave. My name is Gabe Phillips and I'm a pastor at Life Changes Church and I'm married to a beautiful, beautiful lady named Fiona and we've got two wonderful kids named Olivia and Benjamin. And I want to say this is a crazy season that we find ourselves in. And uh, I don't know what's going on in your world, but I know in my world there's uncertainty, there's uh, feeling overwhelmed at times. But I want to keep reminding our hearts again and again that though we may be locked down, we're never locked out. Never locked out of His goodness, His mercy, His grace. They're always available to us. And to remember this, is it's never more clearer than at a time like this called Easter. So I want to quote the incredible secular prophets called Tub Thumping when they once declared, I get locked down, but I get up again. Yes, I believe it, that the church's greatest days are ahead of us, that though we are feeling under pressure, we are like Jesus Christ, are called to arise and shine for our light has come. But with that all aside, I want to tell you Easter is one of my favorite times of year for a number of reasons, one of which is that actually the world seven years ago were introduced to one of the greatest heist underdog stories of our time. A young girl named Fiona Rollstone walked into our church and she had a trail of strapping, broad-shouldered, uh, tan gentlemen who were desperate to vie for attention and get maybe her number and have a coffee with her. But coming from left field or left wing, whichever you choose to use, uh, was a young guy named Gabe Phillips, the true underdog, the, the epitome of, of an underdog story, came in and he stole her affections and stole her heart to the dismay of many. And I want to say, as the classics uh, tell us, the rest was history. But I, I, I say that in jest because actually you can put aside the great train robbery. You can put aside uh, Oceans 11, 12, 13 or 8, whichever is your choice of movie. And these high stories that, that grab our attention of the underdog stealing back that which was stolen. And it, it gets all the emotions going. Today I want to introduce you to the greatest heist ever told, the greatest heist that was ever witnessed, and that was with a man named Jesus Christ who on Good Friday hung between two thieves. And though as he hung there, uh, crucified as a, as a common thief, crucified as a, as a commoner amongst these uh, other thieves around him, his hands and feet were nailed, his body was constrained, there was no apparent help coming, his lungs were giving up his last breath, but with all this happening, the greatest heist that ever seen was about to take place. So I want to introduce you, lean in, and welcome to the heist this Easter. Let's read scripture together. Matthew 28 is the text I'll be reading from, uh, verses 1 to 7. It says this, Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said it would happen. Come and see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. Remember what I have told you. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your son Jesus and that he is not dead, but he is alive and risen indeed and reigning in power and glory. And I thank you, Father, for this moment here and now 
Would you come and soften the hardest heart? Would you come now and call home the heart that is furthest? And ultimately, would you come and heal the brokenhearted amongst us? Would you do this all by the power and the glory of your name, Jesus? Amen. I want to simply, this, this moment together, give us three things that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ stole back from the enemy. So firstly, number one, Jesus robbed sin of its power. We have to understand the power of that moment of crucifixion, of Jesus' death, is found not in just the fact that it was one man dying for, for some people, or it was a man on the cross. It was so much deeper than that. Something so profound was going on. And for us to get the depth, the gravity of this moment, we have to look back at the Jewish sacrificial system of the day. You see, the sacrificial lambs that were, were raised and, and, and reared every year that were going to go on a journey to be slaughtered for the, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would sacrifice the lambs for the sins of the people. The, the, the incredible news that we have to understand is the sacrificial lambs that were raised, they were raised in a special little village called Bethlehem. Profound, profound thing that the lambs that were used every year for, for in Jewish Passovers were raised in Bethlehem. And once a year they were led like lambs to the slaughter, if I can coin that phrase appropriately in this moment, all the way to the city of Jerusalem, we would come in contact with the priests and then the high priests. And they were, the lambs would be verified and checked and, and, and the, the best of the best would be, uh, would be chosen, the ones that were blemish-free and, and had no defect. And the priests would inspect these and they'll go from house to house and they'll get to the place where they'll get to the, the high priest who would look at it and then pronounce that this lamb was perfect for the sacrifice. It's so profound that actually none of these details escape God's attention when we look at Jesus Christ, His life that was started in Bethlehem, raised in Bethlehem. And years later, as Isaiah 53 tells us, was led like a lamb to the slaughter, all the way to Jerusalem. Set his eyes like flint on Jerusalem, where he would go to die. And when he arrives, and triumphantly in this moment, uh, 33 years later after his birth, he arrives in Jerusalem, and is passed literally from house to house, from the priest's house, then all the way to Herod's house, and then to Pilate's courts. And he's inspected and examined to see if he is the one who would be sacrificed for the people. Just this profound lens where we understand that God has His eyes on these details. And what's more in this incredible story is, is if you read in Isaiah 59, there's this profound little passage where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and says, uh, way before Jesus comes, He says, His eyes, God's eyes look upon earth looking for the righteous man, the perfect man is the one translation, but He cannot find one, so He Himself has to come. That's the Isaiah 59, the paraphrased version, that God was looking for a perfect man but could find none on earth. You see that phrase, the perfect man, only appears one other time in Scripture. And that's when we find Jesus in the courts of Pilate. And Pilate is examining him and questioning him and interrogating Jesus. And eventually the Pilate appears before the Jewish people and says, Behold the man, behold the perfect man, I find no fault in him. It is so profound, so amazing that actually the, the pure and spotless lambs that they needed for the Day of Atonement, God provides a pure and spotless lamb in Jesus, one who heaven and earth agree there is no fault in. It's this incredible testimony of Him. And as though He has presented the people, the people don't want Him, and they demand another to be released in His stead. And if you know the story, Pilate gives Jesus or Barabbas, which one would you want? Barabbas, who's a murderer, Jesus, the spotless lamb, which one would you want to be set free? And Barabbas gets released to the people at this time. Barabbas, a profound name, which means son of the father. Bar Abbas, son of the father. 
And it's incredible the parallels that you've got Barabbas, the son of the father, and Jesus who calls himself, I'm the son of the father, the son of the living God. And in this moment, the people get the son of the father, Barabbas, released them. And it's the first time that we see a guilty, illegitimate son being released and set free while the innocent one goes and gets slain. It's the, the first fruit of many to come because there was more to come. Let me keep us going on this journey. Once a year in the Jewish tradition, as I mentioned, the Day of Atonement. And this was a year, a day when the crowd would gather, the people would gather, and two goats or two lambs would be brought in through the people, led all the way through the people. And the high priest would come, and he would come and take the first one that was pure and spotless, and he would slaughter that lamb, and he would take it into the temple, and he would take it beyond the veil, which was called the Holy of Holies, into the Holy of Holies. And if you know your, anything of your Israel geography, the Holy of Holies was facing westward. And you'll take that blood that was slain uh, from the lamb and you'll put it on the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll spread the blood there on the, on the lamb. And as he would do that, uh, he would take that blood and you'll go out again to the, the second goat. And you would get a, a thread, a piece of yarn, and you'll dip it in that blood that was slain from the first goat. And as you put that yarn, you'll tie it around that second goat. And you'll drive that second goat out. And that goat would be led by another person who would lead him all the way out the east entrance. And take that ghost, goat out of the east entrance, which is facing the Mount of Olives. And he'll go down into the valley, out, out and over the Mount of Olives, and into the wilderness. And that goat would go for several days. And somebody had to go with that goat to make sure that that goat would die of natural causes. And the, 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 the narrative goes that once that goat had died, the person then had to ratify that that, that goat had died. So he'll bring the, the thread back from its neck that had been dipped in the first goat's blood. And he'll bring it all the way back to the temple where the high priest would examine it. And tradition says that, that actually every year, this, by some amazing uh, re way or reason, that thread, once that goat had died, would turn white. The red scarlet thread would turn white, which to the high priest and the people would signify that God had accepted the sacrifice of the people. The first goat that was taken westward into the Holy of Holies uh, signified the, sins, the past sins of the people for the past year. The, the second goat led out into the wilderness to die with a scarlet thread on its, around its neck was led out eastward and was to signify the future sins, the, the, future, the sins that lay in the year ahead for the people. And as, if that, as that thread turned white, the high priest then would have authority to proclaim that the sins of the people were forgiven and absolved by God Almighty. And he would say this phrase year in and year out as he looked at this, this whole procedure would be come to an end. He would declare, it is finished. Oh, it's so profound when you realize what is going on here. But actually, what is even more profound is that the, uh, the rabbinical writings called the Talmud tell us that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the temple we know was destroyed in AD 70, so plus minus 40 years before that was the day when Jesus died. We are told by the rabbis of the day that that thread that always would go around the neck of the goat going out into the wilderness, wilderness that turned white every year stopped turning white. Around about the time when Jesus died, that thread stopped turning white. And the rabbis have all these reasons of the different environmental factors, what could have potentially attributed to this. But we know as Christians that actually the real reason that when Christ died, he put an end to the sacrificial system of the day. And he declared that no other sacrifice would ever be acceptable to God. And it's such a profound understanding for us that when we look into this whole narrative of what was going on, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He has no blemish, no spot. He is the perfect one on our behalf. And Psalms tell us, just like the lambs, that He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. How wonderful and glorious is that truth. 
and, and, the, and the prophets tell us again that the high priest of heaven declares with authority over you and I because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross, because of the fact that he has robbed sin of his power. Though our sins were scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. Though the, the thread around our necks declared our guilt and our shame and the blood on our hands, he has washed us white as snow because the sacrifice has been received by God himself. I want to say today, guilty men and women, are going to be set free. I believe guilty men and women, as you're watching this, as you lean in with faith, that you're going to be, have your sin removed as far as the east is from the west. You're going to have your, your, your souls washed white as snow. And you're going to be set free. Like Barabbas, set free when the innocent one is slain on your behalf. And I believe this is all happening because Jesus robbed sin of its power. Secondly, Jesus robbed death of its sting. You see, Jesus dies on the cross. After he says, it is finished, and lets out his last, last breath, he dies, and so too with him apparently does the hope of Israel and humanity at large. The disciples are devastated. All their hopes and dreams have died with this man Jesus on the cross, and they go back fishing. And You can imagine the malaise and the depression that settles on the, the people at this time. And the bodies of crucified uh, villains and victims in that day would often would be taken off the cross and then just thrown on a rubbish heap just to rot. But there's a man, a, a hero in the story, who doesn't get much credit or airtime. Joseph of Arimathea. He comes and appeals to the courts and says, can I take Jesus' body and can I bury it? And they are wanting to hurry and prepare for the, for the Sabbath. So they say, do what you want to do. And, and Joseph takes his body down and he's, we're told that he's a disciple of Jesus. We don't know much about him. But he's obviously a man who's put his life and his dreams and his hopes and his future in who Jesus was saying he was and all the miracles he had witnessed. And there's something inside of him of this Jesus. He loves this Jesus. Now he's seen him die. But we see Joseph walking on silent Saturday, a day that the Bible doesn't talk much about. And he's walking, carrying this body of Jesus to burial. And as he goes and buries him in a tomb, you can imagine the scene as he walks with this dead body of Jesus. The hopes and dreams and futures and desires dead in his arms and tears silently probably streaming down his face and as I had this image of this moment on Saturday as he buried the body of Jesus I couldn't help but think of my heart and our hearts at these times where often we are walking with dead relationships we're walking with dead businesses dead dreams dead futures dead promises and uh, and maybe your heart is heavy when you carry these things in your hand especially at this time here and now in 2020 and you're walking with the what ifs what could have been what should have been but you you think if only well life could have been different but you seem your heart is heavy as you walk with the despair i want to tell you that these moments only make sense when viewed through the lens of easter you see a quick personal story to illustrate this from my family's own history 45 years ago my mom was married to her first husband and after a year of marriage and a battle with cancer he passed away sadly on the 16th of March and that was a date that was heavy on my mom's heart but it grew even heavier a few years later when her family received a phone call from overseas where her brother was playing county cricket she received a phone call that her brother had been murdered and the date of his passing was yes you guessed it the 16th of March that was a date that the family began to not just despair but actually hate and wish away every year that that date would approach and they would hate it and they would want to wish it away and move past it quickly. Many years later, as she married my dad and uh, got to know his family, on the 16th of March 1997, my dad's mom, my gran, passed away 
in a, in a horrific car crash. The 16th of March again. And, and it, uh, it became almost a superstitious day in the family. A day of fear, of dread, of, of sadness, deep sadness. As every year on the 16th of March, they have to remember the, the, the promises and the, the years lost and the joys lost as they carried almost this dead body, these dead bodies around with them, the 16th of March. And it's such a terrible date. Until the year 2017, my wife was pregnant with our first child and Olivia Grace, our first little baby, was born not on the 15th of March and not on the 17th of March, but yes, you guessed it, born on the 16th of March. A day that was traumatic to our family on, on many ways and on every side, a day that everyone hated. But all of a sudden, that day was redeemed by the Almighty God who by God's grace birthed into our family a beautiful girl named Olivia Grace. And we named her that for that very reason. Olivia is a derivative of the word peace. And grace meaning God's undeserved mercy. And in that moment, in those horrific memories, all of a sudden they were washed away and given a whole new perspective when peace and grace entered into our family. I, I want to tell you in this moment that there is no situation and no circumstance that Jesus cannot redeem. I believe this with every fiber in my being, not because of a date in my family, but because a date in Jesus' story, a date where Jesus robbed death of its sting. Thirdly and finally, Jesus robbed the grave of its victory. Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, begins in a garden. Garden full of promise and dreams and desires, but then sin and death get in the way and start to dis distort God's design for humanity. And the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, ends in a coffin. Quite literally, the last words in the book of Genesis end with, and they buried him in a coffin. The story of humanity from a garden to a grave, from a garden to a coffin. And I can imagine the enemy leaning into the story and, and wringing his hands in joy as he sees all of God's promises and desires for mankind getting squashed down into death and despair. And then after all these years, the Son of God arrives on planet Earth. And I can imagine the enemy watching this with a weary eye as he sees Jesus growing in favor with God and man, the miracles, the teaching, and he's weary and he's nervous. And all he gets into the heart of man and Judas betrays him into the hands of the Jewish leaders who, who then rile up the crowd and get Jesus crucified. And I can imagine the enemy rejoicing as Jesus says, it is finished on Good Friday. The enemy not understanding the full weight of that moment, saying, yes, it is finished indeed. And a party of all party parties breaks out in hell. And they party Friday and Saturday as they, as they rejoice of their victory, as they say, man was laid in a coffin and we have finally put the final nail on humanity. Even their Savior has been crucified by their own hands. But we know the story doesn't finish there. On Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. An incredible truth that brings such joy to us that the scripture says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? As Jesus comes and reverses the curse, the scriptures tell us that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you and I. And I know so often it's so hard to believe that because we see it from far and we say, yes, yes, yes. But we struggle to see it in our own lives. We struggle to see the power of resurrection working in us. But I want to tell you today, there's a bizarre scripture in Numbers 5 verse 2. It reads like this. It says, remove from the camp anyone who has leprosy, a discharge, or has become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. Remove them so they'll not defile the camp in which I live among them. A strange scripture, but stick with me. You see, it says this, for, for them to prepare to encounter God in the old way, that to remove anyone who had leprosy, a skin disease, someone who had, who had issues of blood and bleeding, or somebody who had touched a dead body. 
What is so profound is that when Jesus enters the scene, some of the first few miracles he does is he touches a leper and cleanses him. He goes and touches a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years, comes and touches Jesus and she gets cleansed and brought into community. And thirdly, he walks into Jairus' daughter's room who is dead and pronounced dead by a whole crowd of onlookers. He kicks them out and he with one touch says, Talitha Kuhm, little girl get up and she rises from the dead. A leper, uh, somebody with uh, uh, issues of blood and a dead person. Numbers 5 verse 2 is reversed in the person of Jesus. Those who have been far and excluded find their life in Jesus. What is even more incredible is that we see on the cross, Jesus, his last drink is that of sour wine. They put sour wine to his lips and he drinks that. And that might just be a small detail to you, but it's hugely significant. You see, all the prophets talk about this, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and even in the book of Numbers again. There's this understanding of, this says this, the colloquial proverb that says that the children will drink sour wine and their teeth will be set on edge. Colloquially put or, or simply put, it says that they will inherit a curse. A generational curse. Those who drink sour wine will have to the next generation be cursed. And then we see Jesus on the cross drinking sour wine. He himself becoming the curse. Taking the curse of generation of generations from Genesis all the way to that moment and into the future. Taking the curse of humanity upon himself. As Galatians tells us, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Jesus became the curse so that we could be set free and brought near in every single way. What great news today. I love this. Because I want to say to you, sir, ma'am, everyone who is watching this, you may have been carrying the curse of alcoholism with you for generations. You may have been carrying the curse of abandonment, of abuse, of embarrassment of your forefathers around you. But I want to tell you, because Christ conquered the grave, because he robbed the grave of his victory, that actually you can be set free completely. I say it as the old hymn says, because he lives, no power of hell and no scheme of man can pluck you from the Father's hand. This is incredibly true because I believe every curse is defeated in Jesus. This is the great news of the gospel. Wherever you're watching this right now, I want to declare to you, because Jesus robbed sin of his power, because Jesus robbed death of his sting, because Jesus robbed the grave of his victory, he pulled off the greatest heist that humanity has ever seen. And I believe it today because of these things. His grace is here and present to rob you and I of our shame. He wants to rob us and disrobe us of the shame that we have rightly carried for so long. But today the curse is broken. Today the end has come and we can be set free. I want to pray for you because right where you are, I believe the spirit of the living God is with you in your lounges, in your homes, wherever you're watching this, on whatever device you're watching, the spirit of God is there. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is wanting to raise you and I to life. Right where you are, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus and receive the fullness of his life in return. Because this is what resurrection declares. Resurrection declares that the old is made new. That the broken is made whole. And that the dead are coming back to life. Resurrection declares that what was the worst day in human history has become the best day. The pinnacle of our existence. And I believe resurrection today declares that once to, what once defined you no longer has to determine your future. Because His grace is new. He has robbed sin of its power. He has robbed death of its sting and he's robbed the grave of its victory let's pray father i thank you right now that the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead is meeting every single heart 
in every single room scattered around our city, around our nation, around our world. And right now, Father, though we are locked down, we are not locked out from your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. Would you come right now and revive hearts by your Spirit in Jesus' name? I thank you that you break every curse. I thank you, Jesus, that you set every heart free. I thank you, Father God, that sons and daughters right now are receiving the fullness of your life, leaving the old behind and responding to the new that is declared in resurrection life. The old is gone, the new has come. Behold, I'm a new creation. Would you do this by the power of your Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.